Lord Jesus, we ask for you to be in our hearts, to speak to us and to teach us more about the gospel, about how you want to transform us into your image through even the difficult things that we face in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you that you will never leave us, that you always have a path marked out to bring good out of bad. In your name we pray. All right, we're going to talk about how God heals the broken in heart and binds up their wounds. Um, the first thing I want to talk about, remember, we've just talked about the first principle of um, understanding how emotional healing works. Use physical healing as a tool. All of us have the basic idea of how physical healing works. And when you come to a difficult or confusing situation on figuring out your own emotions, this is something time and again, I, even as a counselor, fall back on and say, okay, what would I do in this situation? For example, when a person's pouring out all this anger towards you and they're, they're telling you all the bitterness they have toward their parents for how their parents raised them, you can say, stop. You're criticizing your parents and I don't want you to gossip to me. You need to get, tell all this to God. But that may not be the most productive way for you to reflect the character of God to them. Instead, maybe you need to reflect to them how God listens when people are hurting. And so you may want to listen and see it kind of like lancing that wound. You cut it open and all this garbage is flowing out. Now the solution to the problem is not just letting them vent, telling them everything. You know, a lot of times that's what psychotherapy does. People will pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to go a week after week after week to somebody who they can pour out all the venom of everything that they hate about their parents and wow, they feel so much better. So they think it's helping. It's not helping. You can't cure sin with sin. It is cathartic. It makes them feel better for a while, but by the next week, it's all built up again. That's like lancing a wound every week and packing in more infection. You don't want to do that. But sometimes a person needs to know that God cares, that God understands, that God listens compassionately. And you as a Christian can reflect that to them by listening compassionately and going, wow. That's so painful. I can't even imagine going through something like that. It's only when they feel really heard that they can understand, maybe God loves me too, because this person can love me even when they hear all the vile stuff that has happened to me or the vile stuff that I've done myself. So if pain works the same way as, you know, physical healing works the same way as emotional healing, physical pain teaches us things just like emotional pain. Physical pain forces us to face the situation. Like physical pain forced me to deal with the wound in my foot. Emotional pain forces us to deal with the emotional wounds that we face, the ways that our sin is reacting in ugly ways in our life, poisoning our whole emotional system and our spiritual walk with God. So physical, in physical situations, pain forces us to face the problem, and we have to treat the wound and also prevent or heal the infection. We also know that infections, if they are left to fester, continue the process of destruction, and that healing is a process requiring the removal of infection. Now, the same thing happens with emotional healing. And you may notice with physical healing, if you break your leg, it feels like forever before you can walk again, right? Same thing with emotional healing. It may feel like it's forever before you can actually be healed and free and happy again, but it's not. It's not going to be forever. And I want to encourage you, if you're in the midst of emotional pain that maybe you've been going through for years upon years and you just think there's no way out, the devil will tell you God himself doesn't have a remedy for your pain. 
I want you to know that that's not true. But if you keep slicing that wound open and cramming more infection-causing bacteria in there, yeah, you can be sure your pain isn't going to go away. The cure for your sin, though, is not to keep on sinning, but to figure out how to truly give your sin to a wonderful Savior. So healing is a process that requires both repentance and forgiveness. I don't mean you confess to God the terrible things that your parents or anybody else did to you. My brother did this to me. You wouldn't believe it, God. He was so awful to me. Okay, you have to tell God sometimes, not because he doesn't know, but because you don't feel that he knows. But when you tell God those things, realize that confessing somebody else's sin to God is not going to heal your heart. What's going to heal your heart is confessing your own sin to God. Lord, because my brother did these things to me, because my sister said these things to me, I have this lingering feeling that I believe that you are like this, and I confess that. I repent of that, and I ask you to transform my heart. Help me to believe that you are who you say you are in your word instead of who I feel you are based on my experiences. God will be with you through that process of healing. Sometimes he'll send you to someone else who can help you as a counselor. I hesitate to recommend that people go to counselors because there are so many different stripes and types of counseling. It's like recommending that somebody have a lawn service come in and work on their lawn. Well, every individual is different, right? Every individual doctor is going to be different. Every individual vet is going to be different. And in the psychology world, usually you're going to get bad instead of good because most people are looking to humanistic philosophies to help. They try something and it seems to work and so they figure it works. Instead of figuring that there is a right and there is a wrong and there is a truth and there is an error and God has a plan marked out. So they'll say, well, go home and scream curses into your pillow about how much you hate your parents all this week. Then come back next week and report to me how it feels. And what do you know? They feel so much better the next week. Well then, I guess that's the thing to do. No, baloney. So I'm just telling you, if, you, if the Lord guides you toward finding a counselor, find someone who is a biblical counselor who's going to tell you the gospel has the solution to your problems. Who's not going to say, you know, the problem is deep down within you is good and you just need to dig until you get to that good. No, actually, deep down within you is a carnal heart and it's not going to have the solutions. But the gospel has the solution to your carnal heart. And within the gospel, you will find everything you need to be able to find healing and freedom from the power of sin. When God works with us, he helps us to take refuge in his justice and his mercy, and that gives us the power to forgive. Those sins of response don't have to keep festering in our lives, continuing that process of destruction that was started by someone else's sin against us. If someone sins against me, I'm going to naturally want to sin back against them. When my son slaps my other son, what do you think the other one wants to do back? Don't worry, my beloved brother. <laughs> yeah, it's not the way it is. <laughs> So you're not going to be surprised when those sins of response well up in your own body, in your own mind, as a response to someone else's sin against you. Don't let it surprise you. Just recognize that God has a solution to our sins. Now, what is it that hurts hearts? There are three different kinds of sin. There are sins committed against us. Someone else hits you. There are sins we commit. Someone hitting us back. Then there are the results of just living in a sinful world. Sometimes bad things happen. You know, it's not my fault if a drunk driver crosses the line and hits my car. I may be the one who suffers from that sin that's committed, but it doesn't have to be my sin to make me suffer for it. Now, there might be, you know, for example, my husband's hepatitis C. That's not the punishment of God. 
it's not the result of somebody sinning. It's probably the result of somebody in Zimbabwe using a dirty needle and, you know, boiling it for a while and then reusing it for the next surgery or something like that. So he got a disease, not because of his own sin. It's not because of somebody else's sin against him. It's because of living in a sinful world. Bad things happen. Cars have wheels fall off of them and they go off the road and have accidents. It's not somebody's sin that causes that. One of the things that's really important to remember is that the journey is the destination. What do I mean by that? I mean that God's goal for you is for you to be transformed into the image of Christ. That is called sanctification. And sanctification is a process, not an event. It's a lifetime of growing into the image of Christ. As you are spending time with God, you wake up in the morning, you come to have your devotional time with him, you open up his word and you say, Lord, what did you want to teach me today? And he says, you see this passage right here? I'm talking to you right here about the way that you spoke to your daughter yesterday or the way that you have been thinking about your boss, just that smoldering feeling or the resentment you have toward so-and-so. Whatever it is, God is going to tap you on the shoulder in your devotional time and say, this is an area that you're not like me. And you may go, wow, Lord, that's been there for months, years. How come you never said anything about it? Well, because you weren't ready for that yet. Today you are. Because sanctification is a process of growth. And that's why I say the journey is the destination. Don't set up for yourself the destination of perfection. Someday I'll be perfect. And until then, I can't have any peace. Because God has said in his word in Mark 4.28, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. Often we want to take refuge in perfection. And then when we can't reach perfection, we despair and throw out the baby with the bathwater. I tried the gospel and it didn't work. God wants us to know that it's a process. He's okay with us slipping and falling and he'll pick us back up again. Does that mean that you can fling yourself off the cliff into addiction and then come back with nothing but, sorry about that, Lord? And he goes, that's okay, we all do that sometimes. No, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is when you slip, God doesn't grind your face in the mud and say, you do this all the time, don't you? Maybe you'll learn this time. This is not the character of the God of love. God instead says, I'm sorry you've slipped. It breaks my heart. I'm devastated by your sin. And yes, you've betrayed me and you've betrayed our relationship. But I'm going to help you up. Let's get out of this. Come on, let's go on from here. This is the God that we serve. So no matter what kind of God has been portrayed to you by your circumstances in life, God wants you to know who he really is. You have to realize, if you want to make progress in the Christian life, you don't have to arrive at perfection before God can accept you. You don't have to arrive at perfection before God can love you. All you have to do is come as you are, pour yourself out to him, and surrender. Then he'll take you from there and say, all right, step by step, let's work on it. Don't try to do it yourself. This is not a do-it-yourself project, 100 ways to make yourself perfect. This is a lifestyle of surrender, of keeping your eyes on Jesus. God's word wants to reveal the thoughts and motives of your heart to you, and that's what he wants you to do in your devotional time every day. Not, not a, an achievement, I'm going to read five chapters of the Bible every day. Oh, I missed the last two days. Now I have to read 15. Oh, I can do this. This is not the way God wants us to grow in relationship with him. Many people try to read through the whole Bible or find some accomplishment. I'm going to memorize a psalm every two weeks, whatever. Not saying that those are evil, but that's not what devotional time is about. God wants you to have a devotional time every day 
That's nourishing your soul, spending time with him, realizing what his character is like. God is a God of love. And as you grow into beholding him every day, not just got to read this much every day, check it off my list, yes, did what I have to do in order to connect with God, read for an hour, did whatever I was supposed to do, exercised, ate right. No, God wants it to be a process. He wants us to eat well because he wants our minds to be clear so we can connect with him. It's not an achievement that makes him accept you. People who have been abused have strong tendencies to veer off the bicycle trail one side or the other. I'm going to get into this. I'm going to do it right. I'm going to make him happy with me because that's what they did with their parents, trying over and over. You may be able to figure out what your maladjustments in your relationship with God are by looking at the way you handled things with your parents. Forget it. Never mind. They fall off the other side. I'm not even going to try. They don't care about me. I'm not going to care about them. That may be the way you relate to God, too. Then you get up the next morning and feel terrible, so you're, I'm going to try again. I'm going to try now. I'm going to read 10 chapters a day. I'm going to fast. Maybe that'll help. Maybe God will forgive me for the way I messed up last week if I fast three days this week. No, don't do those things. It's a process of redemption, sanctification, being transformed into the image of God. And by beholding, we become changed. So don't try to make your time with God an achievement. Make it a time of communing with him, talking with him, listening to him, even though that may be hard, and especially listening to him through his word because your perceptions are not as likely to warp you when you're reading his word. When you're praying, you may perceive God as saying things to you like, get it right, okay? But when you're reading his word, you're going to see more of who he really is, and that will help you to understand. Especially study the Gospels and see what Jesus was like, that perfectly balanced picture of love that he gives. Now, according to the Bible, remember we said, number one, pain is not the enemy. What is the enemy? Sin is the enemy, and pain can be one of God's most effective tools to deliver us from sin. So this is a tremendous principle of emotional healing. Pain is not your enemy. That means that you don't have to live with this constant, I'm not going to think about that situation because that's too messed up and it might make me get depressed. Instead, you can say, God, when I'm ready, take me there and help me to heal. You may need to journal some to be able to write out what it is that you feel. You may need to pray through something and say, Lord, the feelings that I felt at that time were so intense, I don't know how to process this, but I know you're a God of love. And I know you number the hairs on my head, that means you care about everything. Ellen White says nothing that in any way concerns our happiness is too small for him to notice. So don't be afraid to bring something to him, no matter how trivial it might seem to you. It's not trivial if it's affecting your heart, because God is after your heart. He wants you to taste a relationship with him that's better than anything that you've ever had in this world. God doesn't take away good things arbitrarily, right? He gives good gifts. He helps us to learn to hate sin by the pain that we go through. I sometimes, you know, I used to be envious of people who grew up in perfect homes. Everything was great. They were so happy. They felt so loved by their parents. I remember seeing my friend sit down in front of his mom, and she kind of ran her fingers over his back, and the tears just welled up in my eyes. I wanted that. It was so unfair. And then following that was the resentment. Why didn't God give that to me? But you see, now I realize God has given me a different gift, but it's not a gift that's less. It's a gift of having to persevere in learning to believe that God is who he says he is. And perhaps my relationship with God is more precious to me because it's something that I've been through. I've had to, to battle, to go to war, to find this relationship with God. And so it's more precious. Maybe I value peace and the joy of living in a home where there isn't constant turmoil because I know what it's like to not have that. 
God gives good gifts, even if there are things that he didn't want us to go through. He'll make them into good gifts. So we've learned that physical healing teaches us about emotional healing and that healing is a process. The next thing I want to say is pain is not the enemy. Sin is. And what does that mean practically? Is the gospel able to change people from seeing pain as the enemy? Because that's the natural thing, right? Like, talk, like we talked about this morning. If we don't see things through the view of eternity, through the lens of what's going to matter 10,000 years from now, then we're going to inevitably look at what's going to matter right now. And my goal in life is going to be, if all that matters is what's under the sun, my goal in life is going to have as much pleasure as possible and as little pain as possible, right? Unless I've got a bigger picture than this world, that's what my goal is going to be. So what does that mean? When people have been through pain, their great goal in life is very, more li- very much more likely to be to avoid future pain, right? So emotional brokenness makes our hearts impervious to the gospel. It makes people not want to come to God. It makes them suspicious that maybe he's not going to satisfy them. If you just go out any random day in any neighborhood and just start knocking on doors, how many of you have ever gone door knocking? Great stuff. Door knocking has transformed my life. One of the things that I learned from door knocking is that there are a lot of stripes and types of people, but pretty much everybody out there has got emotional brokenness. And that brokenness makes them suspicious of God and of people who say that God is loving. That's why we have such a massive evangelistic crisis in the world today, because people doubt that God is really who he says he is in the Bible. And they don't even read their Bibles. They're too busy watching TV or whatever else it is that they're using up all their time with. In the end, they don't believe that God is who he says he is. And the way that we can break through that most effectively is by reflecting God's character to them. You're not going to go door to door and hand out Bibles and say, read this, okay? And slam the door and walk on. You've got to show these people what God's love is like. I found often when I was colportering, the people who were the most likely to read the book were the people who didn't have a whole lot of money to give for it. And I would say, listen, I will make up the rest of the money to pay for this book if you will just promise me you're going to read it. And what would they say to me? I promise I'm going to read it. Why did they value that book? Because they knew I gave it to them out of caring for them. I wasn't just trying to get money out of them. I was saying, I care about you. I don't want you to just give me the $3. All right, phew, got what I wanted. I want this book to transform your life. It's not going to do anything for me after I shut the door and they go in their house and they start reading the book, right? So I must be wanting something good to happen for them. You see, when we invest in people personally and show them the love of God lived out in a human being, that's the surest way that we can help them to see that maybe there is a God of love up there. Maybe they ought to pay attention to what he says he is in his word. We are facing a massive evangelistic crisis, but it also means that if the gospel really works, it must address the brokenness resulting from other sins against us. Because all those people out there have come from homes where there was brokenness, right? We've established every single home in this world has brokenness because every person's picture of God is warped by the sins going on within their family of origin. So God has given us the gospel, and the gospel sets us free from the effects of sin. Now, the next principle of emotional healing I want to talk about um, is that our best weapon against lies is what? Truth. 
you're not going to beat the lies of the devil by going, I'm not going to listen to you, la, 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 la. This does not work. It may work with little brothers and even then not very well, but it does not work with God. And it does not work with the devil. God keeps coming back to our hearts and wooing us with his love. Satan keeps coming back to our hearts and drawing us using our carnal nature. And we can't fight that on our own. You're not going to be able to win in the battle against sin. It's like my five-year-old trying to fight against my husband. My husband's just so much stronger. He can pin him down with one hand. How are we supposed to win against the devil? Your best weapon is truth, allowing God's truth to transform your life. Now, how does truth work practically? Maybe this is starting to seem a little bit too esoteric and you know, theoretical. I'm going to give you a practical example that I've used. Maybe some of you have heard this before in another seminar I've done. But I'm going to talk about the sponge. God has made us like sponges. We're inherently thirsty. We're, we're worshipers. We're created to be worshipers, and we can't help that. So we will worship. We're going to be looking for something to satisfy us, someone to make us feel loved and worthwhile, right? So that's a good thing. God's made us thirsty because he wants us to find satisfaction in him. If we weren't thirsty, we wouldn't feel a need for him, right? God said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. In other words, God is going to leave us inherently restless until we come to him and find peace. So God has made us like these sponges that are thirsty. They're looking for something to satisfy them. We seek satisfaction. Our hearts are thirsty. But imagine a sponge. I'm holding this sponge here, and now I'm going to immerse it in a sink full of hot, soapy water right here. This imaginary sink. I don't know why it has to be hot and soapy, but... Bear with me. That seems to help the imagination, right? So, yeah, no, no, I'm not, I don't have gloves. See, my hand's wet. Yeah, anyway, there you go. I, why is this sponge, when I pull the sponge back out, it's still dry when it's been in this hot, soapy water. I may put it in there for an hour, squeeze it, try it to get it to soak up the water. Why is it not soaking it up? Because this is what happens sometimes, I find, in people's hearts. They say, I'm going to seek God with all my heart. So they say, I'm going to spend time with God. They get up the next morning at 6 a.m. They try to have worship. They read the Bible. They pray, please, God, please help me to connect with you. I confess any sin I can think of. Please help me. But they still feel so distant, so dry. Why are their hearts still thirsty? It's because they've got a Ziploc bag around their hearts. It's like this, this sponge has got a Ziploc bag around it, and then I put it into that water. I can leave it in there as long as I want, but when I pull it up, it's going to be dry, isn't it? This is how our hearts work. We've got a bag around our hearts sometimes holding us back from knowing and believing the love that God has for us. We want to believe, we try to believe, but we have this bag, and I'm going to call it unbelief. Unbelief in who God is. He says he's like this, but it must not be because I don't feel that he's like that. I prayed, but I don't feel him close to me, so he must not be close to me, right? We seek satisfaction. When we don't get it in God, what do we do immediately afterward? I'm still thirsty. I spent two hours seeking God, and he didn't come to me. So I'm going to go out and watch a movie, right? Or I'm going to go find somebody to flirt with. When we come back home at the end of a long day, we have to decide, am I going to open my Bible, or am I going to open my cell phone, or open the refrigerator, or open the DVD shelf and see what I can watch tonight. God wants us to seek him with all of our hearts. And if we don't have God on the throne of our hearts, we'll have something else. If our goal is satisfaction, if our goal is 
happiness, trying to get something to make me feel good, we're going to struggle to ever find a deep relationship with God. But when our goal becomes something higher, wanting to truly glorify God, to let him be the king of our lives, then we put him on the throne of our heart. And the only way that you're going to dethrone everything else on the throne of your heart is if you put Christ on the throne instead. Christ casts everything else off. If you just try to sweep it off, okay, no more cigarettes, no more alcohol, no more television. Next thing you know, you're spending hours on Facebook. Have you fixed this problem? No, you have not. Next thing you develop, you know, I'm going to get rid of the internet. I'm going to get rid of Facebook. Now you're going out to eat pizza with your friends all the time or calling people all the time or going out. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. Anytime we don't have Christ satisfying our hearts deeply, we are going to be idolaters looking for something else to worship. You can't break that cycle. The key is to let Christ be the center of your, your heart. How does scripture get through that Ziploc bag? Now, I want to give you an example that I think will help. You know, bear with the, there are no Ziploc bags in the Bible, but I think this is consistent with scripture, okay? Um, what is the sharpest thing in the world? The sword of, the sword of the spirit, which is the? Word of God. Now, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, can cut through anything, right? It's a discerner of the thoughts and motives of the heart. When God comes to that Ziploc bag around your heart, does He go, nah, she's not worth the effort? No, He poured out His blood for you and for me. He's willing to do anything, anything to get through that. The problem is, we sometimes aren't willing to surrender our unbelief to him because it's a little scary. But God, if I give my whole heart to you, are you going to take away my boyfriend? Are you going to take away my Facebook? What are you going to do, God? If I give myself to you, what are you going to take away from me? We're afraid because that idol is the thing that gives us the most satisfaction in our life. What if he takes it away? And then what if he doesn't satisfy me in, re in response? What if he doesn't fix it? He just leaves me desolate and miserable? What if he takes away all my nice clothes and makes me wear long, ugly, gray dresses all my life until Jesus comes? That's what he's going to do, too. He's going to take away my makeup and take away my boyfriends, and he'll never let me get married, and he'll probably make me go be a missionary in Siberia. <laughs> you know, people have this feeling that God is going to take away good things and give them drudgery if they surrender to him. And so we hold ourselves back in unbelief, going, but God, what are you going to give me if I give you my heart? And until we really desperately get thirsty enough, we're ready to say, whatever, it doesn't matter. I just want you in my heart, Jesus Christ. Until we get to that point, there's going to be very little God can do. But God is willing to break through that. And I'm going to share with you how the Bible says to get through that. Now, how does scripture cure our hearts? I'm going to Use a parable here. Now, this is something you can do in your devotional time. I picked one thing that I studied in my devotional time that was very helpful and thought this may be something that may be helpful to other people too. And I've only got a little bit of the parable here. So you can go on and read the rest of Mark 4 and find all kinds of other great insights. But let's just pick this part. Um, in the story, and we don't have a whole lot of time to read, so I'm just going to summarize. I'm sure you guys are familiar with this parable. The seed falls on the footpath, right? God's says that the sower went forth to sow. And as he sowed, some of the seed fell on the footpath where it was hard. And what happened to that seed? Who remembers? 
The birds ate it, right. The birds ate the seed, so it didn't bear any good fruit. Now, later on, Jesus gives an explanation of the parable. He said the sower was who? God was the sower, and what was the seed? The word of God. Now, let me ask you, is there anything wrong with that sower? Is there anything wrong with that seed? What is the problem? The problem is the soil, the footpath, is hardened, right? Now notice, I think maybe God put this in there for a reason. Have you ever noticed what makes a footpath hard? Is it, the, is it the ground that made itself hard? It's the constant walking. A footpath is a place that feet have walked, right? So a footpath is hard. If you go back to this picture of the footpath, the footpath is hard because it's been trampled on. Our hearts are very often like a footpath, particularly if we've been through abuse. There's somebody else's sin that's resulted in the hardening of our own hearts, the temptation being strengthened in our own minds to unbelief and pride. We are tempted not to believe that God is good, and we're tempted to believe that we are good instead. And that temptation to unbelief and pride hardens our hearts so that when the sower comes and he sows the word, it does nothing. Now, time and again, I've gone to church and I've seen the back row, the hardened young people in their saggy jeans going, uh-huh. And all they're doing back there is writing notes and flirting with each other and dreaming of their next tattoo they're going to get. You know, that, that approach, does that mean these people are hardened and useless and worthless? No, but very often they've been through painful circumstances in their lives that have led them to not believe in the character of God. It doesn't mean it's their parents' problem. It doesn't mean it's their parents' fault because, you know, if one of those teenagers is yours, don't think I'm saying this is all your fault. I'm saying that very often people are just plain lazy and they don't desire to, to connect with God deeply enough to pour themselves out seeking Him. It's only later on when those teenagers 10 years later have followed all the paths that they thought were going to make them happy. One rabbit trail after another. They try alcohol, well, that leads to drunk driving. Then they, they get some kind of conviction and they're messed up. Now, okay, well, now I've found a relationship. This is going to make me happy. So they pursue that until it leads to bitter disappointment. Then they pursue an addiction to movies or music or TV or food. or It doesn't matter what it is. Even the sanctified Adventist addictions, you know, ministry, work, whatever it is, if there's something taking the place of Christ in your life, making you feel loved and worthwhile, that thing is an idol. And God has to, in his love, make that idol crumble in order to bring you back to himself. So 10 years later, those same young people have gotten the tattoo and they have pursued the relationships and they've tried all these things they were sure were going to bring happiness. And instead, they're not happy that's when they may be more likely to come to Jesus. When that happens, maybe they're willing to attack the footpath with some seriousness. Hopefully before that, because by the time they get to that point, there are a lot of scars, as those of us who have gone down that path know. You don't have to go there. We can save you the trouble by telling you, don't do the primary research, just take it from us. The secondary research is good enough for you. Take, it from, take our word for it, it's not gonna satisfy. Nothing out there is gonna satisfy, only Jesus Christ. But when, when the birds come and take away the seed before it can bear fruit, what can you do to make that situation different? The next time the sower sows the seed, which is the word of God, what do you need 
to make that seed go in. I just grew a garden this year, okay? If I had a garden that looked like that footpath, hardened ground, what do I need to do first? Okay, till it. Now, if you want to use um, what you would be using 2,000 years ago in Jesus' time, what would you be using to till that ground? Wouldn't be a rototiller. Okay, a hoe, some kind of sharp instrument, right? Let's say for the sake of the illustration, we'll call it a sword, all right? The sword is going to pierce through that, that hard ground. So I take the sword and I tap it on the ground like this. Is that going to fix it? That's not going to fix it, is it? What about if I just kind of skim over it like this? I'm skittering across that, that ground. Is this going to fix the problem that you've got hard ground? No. Anybody who's garden knows swiping the sharp blade across is not going to do anything. What do I have to do? i got to pierce it. I've got to point the sharp point at the soil directly, don't I? And then what do I need to do? Tap, tap, tap. i got to put some force behind that thing, don't I? I'm going to have to work. I'm going to have to dig. I'm going to have to persevere. Here's where many people fail in their Christian experience because they say, okay, Lord, I'm going to believe your promises. I'm going to trust you. And they open up their Bible, and it falls open to a promise, and they read it. Delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of their, your heart. Amen. They slap their Bible closed and say a little prayer, and they go on, and they wonder why their relationship is shallow. What do you know? If you want the Word of God to truly transform you, if you want the seed that the sower sows, that good seed to go down and to germinate and to bear fruit in your life, you've got to turn the sword toward your heart. That means you're going to have to look at that gospel truth and say, how does this apply to me today? Delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Lord, am I truly delighting in you? What am I delighting in? What am I looking forward to doing today? Am I looking forward to going to a movie with my friends? Am I looking forward to finishing that novel that I've been reading? Am I looking forward to flirting with that cute girl at school? What am I really looking forward to? What am I delighting in? And where are the desires of my heart? You see what I'm talking about? You've got to point the sword at your own life. Look at myself personally, not just I'm going to read a chapter and then I can cross that off my list of things to do today. But really meditating on how does this matter? And then you've got to put some force behind it. Lord, I am not delighting in you. And I realize that maybe the reason why is because I'm reading things that wean the mind from the love of Bible study and prayer, encourage hasty superficial reading merely for the story, destroy the power of connected vigorous thought. And that isn't just reading. That might be what you're watching, right? Or what you're listening to. Or the people you're hanging out with that are not helping you to truly value the Word of God persevering in study and in relationship with God is going to take some work. People are willing to persevere all over the place in relationships with other people sometimes, right? If you've got the hormones pumping, you'll find yourself leaping over cliffs to help this person. I'm going to do anything I can to make this relationship work. Why? It's not out of love. It's out of hormones. But when we come to our relationship with God, sometimes the hormones are missing and therefore the pizzazz isn't there, and we're looking for something else that makes us excited. We're more excited about the pint of ice cream than we are about the relationship with God. And consequently, the birds come and take away the seed before it can bear any good fruit in our lives. If we want a relationship with God, sometimes he's going to call us to cut out some of the other stuff. 
He's going to say you've got to put some force behind that sword of the Spirit if you want it to pierce your heart and really make something good bear fruit. Now, many people, that's too much effort. Oh, yeah, they want a relationship with God, but they're satisfied to put on some Christian music that makes them feel close to God. Wow, I felt so close to God when I listened to that song. almost moved me to tears. Well, I must be close to God now. And they go on living their life that's sinful, doing things that they know they shouldn't be doing because now they feel close to God. And any time they push play, they feel close to God again. Ah, oh, wonderful. I feel so close to God. But that's not a real relationship, is it? So the ground needs to be cultivated so the seed can penetrate it. The water of life and the sharp two-edged sword of the Spirit are the keys because you don't just grow something without any water, right? You put that seed in, you shine down the sunlight of God's righteousness on it. You behold his glory and you're changed into his image. You water it by praying for the Holy Spirit to be poured out in your life. And sometimes you need somebody else's effort, right? The ground doesn't save itself typically. You may need to take some time to go to Bible studies, to spend time with other people who have a relationship with God, to talk with somebody who is a mentor who might be able to help you grow in a relationship with God, a counselor who might be able to help you to understand that God is not who you felt he was. See, these are all ways that God can help pierce that soil, the hardened hearts that we have, so that we can find a deeper relationship with God. Sometimes sins separate from us from God, even when we don't realize that we're sinning. You know, for example, the sin of denial. Denial is a sin, it's lying to yourself, isn't it? The Bible says, he that speaketh the truth in his heart will be saved. God desires truth in the inward parts and in the hidden part. He'll make us to know wisdom. He doesn't want us to lie to ourselves, to say, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, and not really allow the gospel to penetrate into our hearts. But there is a sin not unto death. God wants to convict us and help us to understand when there are areas that our hearts need to be transformed into his image. So if you want to get the truth to puncture that Ziploc bag around your heart, here are a few suggestions, not an exhaustive list, but some things that I would say will probably be helpful to you. One of them is to make a list of Satan's lies to you personally. I talked about this earlier. If you want to really make some progress in beating back the forces of Satan that have been holding you in bondage for a long time, make a list and look at those things. Am I really fat and ugly? And if I am... So what? Does that mean that I am not valuable in God's eyes? Not at all. Am I really stupid? If I am stupid, does that really matter? You see, you've got to get to the heart of the issue because God is always after your heart. It doesn't matter whether you have weaknesses, faults, problems. What matters is that God is working in your heart. Though the outward man perish, yet the inward man is what? Renewed day by day. God continues renewing us as we surrender to him. So then you want to evaluate each one of those things to find the root lie that has to do with your sense of worth and being loved. Meet those lies with scripture and with quality relationships. I don't mean that you depend on other people to make you feel like you're loved. There are a couple of other presentations I've done that you can listen to on Audioverse or on Heart Thirst that in which I talk about whether, you know, it matters what other people think of you. Um, I love me, I love me not, parts one and two. It's kind of, you know, I read, I gave some of the illustrations of things that I've read online that, 
people say, this is how you build your self-esteem. One of them was to make a sheet of paper and say, things I like about Nicole on the top. And then I go around to all my friends and family members. I'm not recommending you do this. Don't get excited. I'm just saying. These are the things you can find out there on the Internet that say, this is how you can boost your self-esteem and start feeling good about yourself. So you take this paper to people, and you say, what do you like about me? Would you just please write it down there? <laughs> and then, every time you start feeling bad about yourself, you whip that baby out of your wallet and you read it. They like me because I've got pretty teeth. Oh. <laughs> and because I'm so much fun. This is no way to base your sense of worth. Your worth is measured in the price that was paid for you on the cross. If you measure it based on what people think of you, you're going to go up and down with the waves, and it's not going to be pretty. So God wants you to find your sense of worth on what he says in his word. Meet those lies about your sense of worth and lovability with scripture, with what does God say about you. And then you meditate on that truth until it becomes your new reality. This is how you puncture through the hard ground and start making the gospel be real, making a relationship with God truly be the center of your life, the center of why you feel loved and worthwhile, why you know you are no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how many mistakes you make. You know, um, I don't know how many of you watched the Olympics lately. I didn't see very much of anything on the Olympics, but I did see one little news article that struck me. There were these two girls that had been fencing, and when one of them won, the other one was so devastated. Here she's come, like, second in the Olympics. She's so devastated, she sits down on a bench and eventually had to be helped away by somebody. She just sat there so blown away by the fact that she hadn't made it to number one in the entire world, only number two. And I thought, what, what a perfect example of how the world will tell you to base your sense of worth. What if she had made it to number one? Would that have satisfied her very long? Never. Somebody else is always right behind you, right? And yeah, I won that time, but what if we did it again? Am I going to win next time four years from now? Oh, the anxiety. You know, your worth is not based on your performance. It's irrelevant. Your worth is based on the price that was paid for you. And when you find your sense of worth and lovability and what God thinks of you instead of what people think of you, all of a sudden you have this invincible wall that the devil cannot attack and say, relationship with God doesn't matter. Who God is doesn't matter. No, now he's your best friend. He's the reason why you live. He's the reason why your life is so rich and alive and beautiful. Why you wake up in the morning know that you're, knowing you're loved and worthwhile. This is how God wants to transform our lives. But it happens through meditation on his word and through quality relationships with other people that teach us about God's character. These are the ways that we understand the character of God and grow to truly love him. Now, we've talked about several different principles here, um, uh, biblical principles of emotional healing. The next one is that our sense of guilt is a blessing from God, and our sense of shame is a curse from Satan. We talked about this a little bit earlier. Guilt is designed to draw us to God. Shame is designed to drive us away from God. If you can't tell which it is, because sometimes it's very hard to tell. If you make a mistake, especially sexually, you may feel devastated by guilt. But then you pray. It's guilt that drives you to your knees and says, Lord, please forgive me. Cleanse me. Make me white as snow. Fulfill your promise to me. But then when you stand up from your knees and you feel this overwhelming, overwhelming sense of, I'm so bad. I messed up so badly. This is not guilt. This is shame. It's the devil saying, 
God didn't really forgive you. God's promises aren't true, right? God says if you confess your sins, if you truly repent, I will wash you white as snow. I'll make you as though you've never sinned. But the devil says it's not true. He didn't do it. You got to pray some more. Get down there and pray. Or maybe you need to fast some. Or maybe you need to do something. Get out there and do ministry. Maybe that'll help God to accept you. And after a few days, you start feeling a little closer to God again. And so then you finally believe, okay, maybe he did forgive me. You see, shame is a message of unbelief. It makes us doubt the word of God, doubt the character of God. And it's a message of discouragement. Guilt is a message of hope. So you can tell whether it's guilt or shame based on what it inspires you to do. Guilt makes you long for a savior. Shame makes you want to stay away from a consuming fire redeemer who is just going to burn you up anyway. So what's the use of trying to have a relationship with him, right? God doesn't want us to focus on sin. He wants us to focus on him as our savior. You're likely on the one side to fall off into the ditch of I'm so good, I actually don't need a Savior. Look at how well I've done. I've been so disciplined. I've run uh, 10 miles every morning, and I've been eating well, and I've been you know, reaching out to other people in ministry, and I'm having my devotions, and I'm doing well in school, and I have lots of friends, and I'm popular, and my hair looks good today. <laughs> you know, All of these things, therefore, pride comes in and says, I'm great. I don't even need God. I don't need forgiveness because I'm actually a pretty good person then unbelief comes in on the other side, and it's actually a cycle. It'll crash you later on. When you mess up, and you mess up big time, then you'll crash into the opposite side. God himself can't do anything with somebody as messed up as me. You can tell which one of these is coming into play by the way it affects you. One thing that's important to remember about shame and the difference between guilt and shame is remember that other sins cannot permanently damage you. Only your sinful choices in response to other sins can separate you from God, according to Genesis 50:20. And that's great news because what can happen to your sins when you confess to Christ? They're washed away. You become white as snow. So the only thing that can permanently defile you is your own sin, not someone else's sin against you. And that's great because any time that you confess your sins, that defilement is gone. Abuse, particularly sexual abuse, makes people feel they're tempted to believe that they are no longer loved or worthwhile, that there's something inherently bad about them, that they are forever shamed and dirty, and there's nothing that can ever redeem them. Emotional abuse often does that to people too. Makes them feel, you know, my parents told me over and over, therefore it must be true kind of thing. So other people's sins cannot permanently damage you, only your own sins, and those sins can be forgiven. Abuse is not God's will, but he can use it to accomplish his two great purposes. First, revealing his love, and second, changing us into his image. God wants to change us into being like him. So remember, abuse tempts us to sins of pride and unbelief. And God wants to set us free from those sins. That's good news for those who are struggling with lingering effects of abuse from the past. God has a plan to set us free from those things. It's not a trap that you're going to stay in all your life because you messed up or because somebody else messed up in their relationship with you. Um, I want to talk briefly about this cycle that I see most people get into when they start trying to make efforts to break free from the cycles of abuse from the past. 
there's that middle line of looking unto Jesus. The path that leads to eternal life is straight up the middle there, getting, going neither to the right or to the left. When you turn, and no matter what happens to you, when you turn to Jesus in the darkness as well as the light and you pursue him with all of your heart, everything else comes into focus. This is the most powerful principle of the gospel, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. When we look at that Jesus in every aspect of who he, wa- who he was and who he is and who he wants to be in our lives, everything else comes into perspective. If we get off on one side or the other side, remember I was just talking about the pride side, pride leads to anxiety disorders, to self-sufficiency, to OCD, if people are struggling with phobias, anorexia, workaholism, self-righteousness, PTSD, control issues, perfectionism, attempts to earn love or attempts to earn worth. These are just a few examples of what I've seen people go through in their attempts to be God, to be good enough that they don't even need God's help, or to be in some way what they wish God had been for them. We try to make up for it. When people get off onto that side, into the anxiety, and they push and push and push themselves, usually, eventually, they hit the wall where they realize, oh, I'm really not God. I'm really not capable of doing everything. And then they crash, and they often swing from that side all the way around to the other side, the escapism, substance abuse, suicidal thoughts, bulimia, idolatrous relationships, self-loathing, other kinds of PTSD issues, fantasy, porn, masturbation, fear of abandonment. These are some examples of things that come from the root of unbelief. When, when we fall into unbelief, we fall into depression. See, pride and anxiety is what results from us seeing ourselves unbiblically. We see ourselves as better than we really are. And the solution for pride is, of course, humility looking to Jesus and praising God for who he is, for how mighty he is, for how loving he is, for how good he is. When we talk to God about who he is and we meditate on the glory of the heavens, the glory of nature, the beauty of redemption, it shrinks us down to our proper size and prevents us from having these issues. Anxiety and fear issues often come from because I don't believe that God is going to take care of me, i got to take care of myself, right? I'm trying to be God. And it leads to the opposite side, where you're not seeing yourself biblically again, but it's the opposite extreme. On the pride side, you see yourself as better than the Bible says you are, better than God says you are. On the depression side and unbelief, you see yourself as worse than God says you are. You know, that classic, God himself can't do anything with somebody as messed up as me. I'm so messed up. I am so miserable, I am so worthless, I am so unlovable. You see what I'm talking about? On this side, you need not just humility, but to look to Jesus and see, wow, he really is that loving. Now, both of them have an element of truth in them, right? God created us to reflect his image and to be changed into his likeness. So on the pride side, there's a grain of truth in that. God has created us to grow infinitely into the image of Christ. And he wants us to be continually changed by beholding him. He has infinite value for us. He's paid in his blood for us. So there's something true on that side. But it's Satan warping it into a lie. Truth mixed with error is the most dangerous kind of truth, isn't it? The most dangerous poison is the poison that's mixed into a plate of good-looking food, right? 
On this side, there's also a grain of truth, right? We are filled with evil. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags, right? There is none good, no, not one. None of us can achieve salvation. And all of those truths, because they are truths, could be very depressing if they weren't balanced out by the incredible love of God. This is why if we look not to self but to Christ, we find balance. If we look to self, we're going to fall off on one side or the other, and usually we'll swing back and forth between the two. You know, the typical college student wake up Sunday morning, make a list of everything they're going to do, not get a quarter of it done, get depressed and crash and go start goofing off Sunday night because they didn't get everything done and now they feel too depressed, right? It goes back and forth. People depend on themselves and then when they've looked to themselves and thought that they were strong enough to do something, they crash and then they go into escapism or into depression or into self-punishment. I hate you. You always do everything wrong. The self-loathing where we think somehow we can make up for our own mistakes. God doesn't want us to keep swinging back and forth between these two false perceptions of self. He wants us to look to him. So if you're on that side of pride, you need to have humility. Praise God for who he really is. If you're on this side of unbelief, you want to praise God for who he is. Once again, praise him for his love for you. Praise him for how he saw such value in you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. When you're at your very lowest and your worst and you see all the ways that you've messed up, you can go, wow, God, I feel like slime. And yet you love me so much. This is incredible. God doesn't want us to swing back and forth between these two extremes. He wants us to live in the light of his presence, walking in the light day by day. The path of the just is as a shining light that shines more and more into the... The what? The perfect day. God wants us to walk with him. And if we fall, he said, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Don't try to punish yourself if you sin. That's self-justification. It's Catholic, you know? It's trying to save ourselves by our own works. God doesn't want us to try to save ourselves by our own works. He doesn't want us to say, never mind, I'll just be saved in my sins either. Those are both the principles of idolatry, of all heathen religions, that man can be saved by his own works or that man can be saved in his sins. God wants us to look to Jesus and say, you really are that good, aren't you? You really do love me that way. You really are that much better than I am. I can't do anything of my own self, but you can do all things through me. You see, God wants us to look to him the way that the woman who was caught in adultery looked to him. She didn't see herself as so great, did she? Here she was. Imagine yourself in her shoes. You know, one of the most powerful ways that you can study scripture and make it come alive for yourself is using sanctified imagination, as Ellen White suggests. Thinking through a story and imagining yourself in somebody else's shoes. Most people who have gone through abuse have experienced significant shame in their lives and often continue to experience it. And I found great comfort in studying the story of this woman caught in adultery. Imagine a woman in adultery back in those times. Here she's a good Israelite girl, right? She's Jewish or they wouldn't have brought her to the temple. Probably she's been through sexual abuse of some kind growing up. That's what usually happens when a person feels so dirty and worthless that they go voluntarily into a life of prostitution 
when they've come from a good Christian home, you know. So here's this girl feeling cut off from God, feeling condemned. And what's her greatest fear? Rejection, eternal damnation, the shame of everybody finding out. Because she already knows God hates her, God rejects her, right? She's a prostitute. You can't get lower than that as a Jewish woman. Here's this Jewish girl going, I am cut off from God. And then thinking of herself as being worthless, unlovable, day after day. She's demonstrating to herself and to the world, I am worth nothing. Then one day the worst happens. The Jewish leaders come bursting in and catch her in the most humiliating moment of her life and drag her away to the temple. Now remember, this Jewish girl has this perception of the temple. We don't think adequately of the temple. This is not like being dragged to church. This is the holiest place in the entire world to this woman. And she is the filthiest person that she can possibly imagine. Here she is in ashamed. How would you feel being dragged through the streets? Imagine yourself in her shoes. Here she's an abuse victim, and now she's being further abused. Not just abused by random men, but by the spiritual leaders. And don't think that they were looking compassionately on her, were they? They're jeering at her. What kind of religion was she raised in? You know, think for a moment. Would you want to go to church when you go in there and you see these guys up in front? You know what hypocrites they are. You know how they behave. She might have had some good reasons to doubt the character of God, don't you think? Would these guys be in her pastors? So here she is, being dragged to the holiest place on earth in the filthiest condition possible, and knowing not only all of that, not only is she cringing, fearing, are her friends from high school going to see her as she's dragged down the street? You know what I mean? But she's about to be dragged into the temple as this defiled woman, and they're laughing at her, and there's going to be a crowd, and then they're going to stone her. Her greatest fear, not just death, but eternal condemnation. And then she's dragged into the temple, and she's brought to this man, and she doesn't know what they're doing. She's too ashamed to even look up, probably. But imagine the face of Jesus and the contrast between Jesus and the other religious leaders that were around her. And Jesus stands up for her. He defends her as a victim of abuse, spiritual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, and probably sexual abuse in the past and certainly recently. Every kind of abuse she's been through for a long period in her life, she is acutely miserable. She feels completely worthless and totally unlovable. What, what, what would she see in the face of Jesus looking at her? Love and acceptance, compassion, sympathy. She sees somebody who sees her as lovable and worthwhile. And he stands up for her against these guys. He says, if anybody here is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. Here he stands. There is somebody in this crowd who is without sin, isn't there? There's only one there who has the right to cast that stone. He has every right. He is pure. None of these other guys are. They're all sinners. They're full of pride and unbelief. They're about to crucify the Son of God. But Jesus stands there with the right to cast those stones. But you see, that's not who he is. 
He wouldn't do that. He's not like that. And Jesus says to her, after he drives away these hypocrites, then he says to her, stoops down beside her and says, are you okay? Listen, neither do I condemn you. Look, your accusers are gone. They're out of here. You're free now. You're safe now. I'm here with you. And he says, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. That's the whole gospel right there, those two things. If he just said, go and sin no more, woman, would that be the gospel? Many people think that's the God that they're trying to worship, but they have a hard time worshiping him for some reason. What if he said, just neither do I condemn you? Do we worship a God that picks up the alcoholic out of the gutter, saves him, and drops him right back in the gutter to continue his alcoholism? What kind of hope would that be for her? But Jesus, our Jesus, gives both sides of the gospel. He says, I don't condemn you. I'm here beside you. I'm your defender. Those things that happened to you that misrepresented my character, that told you that God is condemning, that God is hypocritical, that the God that rules that temple isn't anybody you'd want to be friends with. Those were lies. I'm the real God, and I stoop down beside you and tell you, I'm on your side. I love you. I see you as priceless, not because of anything that makes you prettier than anybody else, not because of anything that makes you more worthwhile than anybody else, but because you're worth my blood. He says, I don't condemn you. I'm going to die in your place. Go and sin no more. In this consciousness, in this consciousness of your worth and of your lovability, you can now go out of here and for the first time in your life, you're equipped to go and sin no more. God is so good, isn't he? It all boils down to the character of God. If God is really who he says he is, then you can find refuge in him. And no matter what abuse you've been through, no matter what trauma you have gone through in your life that has tempted you to believe that God is not good, you will be able to overcome that. You will be able to find him to be a refuge, a safe shelter in the time of storm. And perhaps you will be equipped in ways that other people who haven't gone through such great struggle will be too shallow to make it through the times of trouble ahead. Maybe you'll be able to know because you know that Jesus. You've tested him. You've been the woman who was dragged to him. And you've known how it feels to be unloved, to be worthless, and then to find your lovability and worth in him. I want to appeal to you today. Whatever your brokenness is, hand it over to him. Tell him what it is. Don't feel like you've got to do it in one instant. Pray, pray the prayer right now and now expect yourself to be healed. Accept it as a process, not an event. A process of being changed into the image of Christ, of growing day by day from this day until Jesus comes to understand more and more of what he's like. Just like the lambs that used to be unruly and run away from the shepherd and the shepherd would have to break their leg and then carry that lamb everywhere with them until the lamb's leg healed. When the lamb's leg healed and the lamb could finally walk again, it would never leave the shepherd. And that's what God wants to do with your wounds and my wounds. He wants to make those into the things that make us feel our need for his love and for that sense of worth that can only truly come from him. Because when you get your sense of being loved and worthwhile from him, all the other stuff will be seen for what it is. Cheap, worthless, idolatrous trash. And you will find in him everything that your heart has ever desired. Let's stand and bow our heads for prayer.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are not who we have sometimes felt you are, but that you are the God who stoops down beside us and loves us with an everlasting love, who says, let's get up and go on from here. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Lord, I pray that you will take the burdens that are on our hearts right now. Each person in this room, Lord, we want to hand over our burdens to you and ask you to bring us healing, to transform our hearts, not just in spite of these pains, but actually because of them, that we will understand your character better than we could have if these things hadn't happened to us. Help us, Lord, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to allow your word to break through the barriers in our minds of unbelief and pride, that we may be transformed into your image and that may win someday when you come in the clouds, we may see your face and your name may be in our foreheads. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen.